And then just the idea itself, I think, touches on a lot of elemental primal fears that people have. Fear of the next generation, like fear of young people. Yeah. I get a little bit of that of like, what if the young people who come along decide they don't need us anymore? Or what if they decide that they don't believe what we believe and in fact they're going they're going to dispense with us, right? Like that 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 is I think kind of an innate fear as you start getting older and seeing younger people starting to become, you know, become important. Friends, to episode 283 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Stephen King's 1977 short story and Fritz Kirsch's 1984 film, Children of the Corn. So I don't know about you, James, but about this time of year, there's always like a cool day that comes along. It's overcast. It starts feeling a little bit like fall. And I just want like a taste of Halloween. I want to, like, get a jump on it. I started thinking about putting up Halloween decorations, and even though it's, like, early September. But, you know, I just, I, I'm in the spirit. And it, it felt like this would be a fun one to to get a little taste of that. Now, we're about to do a big fantasy project next. So we'll be away from horror for a while. Um, but I thought this would be a good way to, to, to sneak something in here and go back to a classic, uh, you know, a favorite of the pod, Stephen King, and in a movie that I had never seen. Oh, you'd never seen this? Wow. Right. Um, I'm right there with you, though. I, I mean, in Florida, it's a little different, but it gets a little less hot. It's been a little, <laughs> yeah. little less than 100. Degrees. I remember, like every now and then, you might get a lucky day, but yeah, it's probably not till October in Florida where you might get a day. Don't get me wrong; yeah. it gets nice here. It's not that it's yeah. it's not nice. It's just it doesn't. You guys have like a full what three yeah. or four months of fall probably. This is my favorite time of year. Period. There's just a lot of important dates. There's Halloween. Maybe this isn't for everybody, but the end of the year is just like. Um, downward slope to the end and it's just like a nice feeling <laughs> and downward in a good way like an easy yeah. end of the year kind of thing uh typically so we'll talk about the film but the story in general with visiting yeah. revisiting king does feel right for this time of year this movie the reputation and i remember my friends and people growing up kids were terrified of this movie this was like it it was like it chucky there were some other ones like this that for whatever reason maybe more so than they're you know they're r-rated and they're for adults but they hit kids and they terrify yeah. kids is this an r-rated movie yeah it is that's so wild like it didn't feel r-rated to me i thought this movie was pretty tame but i totally agree like i also had this reputation built up in my head and i hadn't seen it so i assume you've seen this before yeah okay so i hadn't seen it so i this was always a movie i heard talked about and I felt like it was talked about in hushed tones, like totally children of the corn. You know what I mean? Like it's this creepy ass movie. And like, I, I always imagined it was like a really gory slasher movie. Mm -hmm. Like I was going to see people getting dismembered. It was going to be horrific. Right. That was kind of like what I was expecting going into this. I'm like, this is going to be a slasher movie. And I guess it kind of is, but without the gore, really, like all we see is some blood spatter and it's pretty tame. There are some things like I can see. The, the the soil being tilled up by some sort of creature under the earth and and yeah. like some of the stuff that like the culty nature of the the kids and the way the creepiness that those things i think stick with that audience a little more so yeah. than an adult like me currently watching yeah <laughs> in today's day and age i was like man this is like really really tame and yeah. it makes some interesting deviations from king's work king's story is a little bit more like what i was imagining like exactly that one's pretty fucking and it, it feels like a King story. Yeah, it doesn't pull punches. And yeah. you'll be interested to know that Stephen King wrote the screenplay at first for this. And they ended up not liking it, pivoting, uh. <laughs> going with some other things. So there were some disagreements there with the production. And, and I'll talk about sort of what King, how King feels about it. Yeah, and I know this is a franchise now. Like there's been sequels. There's yeah. been a remake, I think, a few years ago, which we could have covered. But it felt I, like I wanted to go back to the one that I had always heard about as a kid. Like I, I wanted to see it. Just yeah, to know think, what all the what all the noise was about. <laughs> I think there was a very recent, yeah, uh, like like within the last year, twenty twenty. So. I think twenty 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 one something like that. Yeah, pretty recent. And, you know, I don't know a lot about it, but we could pursue it for a bonus episode. But yeah. I want to talk about the idea of like horror films. Some horror fans are interested in like knowing going in that there's going to be A, B, and C. There's certain tropes that we know we're going to get, and it's sometimes familiar and enjoyable because of that. And I see you see some of these like slasher more slasher films like your freddy's and jason's and things like that they get millions and millions of sequels and it be, they become like event movies and i just think of this movie 
being like a launching point a small short story by Stephen King yeah. especially for him very relatively short and then this film that I'm watching today and I don't think is like incredibly remarkable I think it's got good performances and some some notable things especially for the time but the fact that there's like six seven sequels multiple remakes is is kind of wild to me like what more yeah. can you do with this now I do I like that there's commentary being made and this comes from King's original work yeah. with religion I was picking up a lot of social commentary stuff that I'm gonna want to like dial in on as we go through the episode um, because I, I do think there's like a subtle difference in in some of it between the story and the movie mm -hmm. and what some of the like takeaways are um, totally. but yeah there's there is some like thematic yeah. substance there I think it's just this universal experience of you everybody's every kid has been I would a lot of kids at least have been on a drive in the middle of nowhere cornfields on the side and just imagined how or whether it was at night or not imagine how creepy that is and how isolating that is so that universal feeling is a great starting point for a story and then children of the corn is a great name like a yeah, cult name it's a good name I think it's a good hook a name goes a long way. I think that's one of the reasons why, like, you know, yeah, it's like I've heard it referenced so many times. You hear kids being called children of the corn if they're like being creepy, right? Like it's like it's synonymous with creepy kids. So there's enough here that like I understand why it's got the legacy it does. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't I don't necessarily walk away thinking this is a fantastic yeah. uh, movie. But I, I do want to talk a lot more about the story. Yeah. And it, it's also, I think, important to put it in its position because this was King after he had already exploded onto the scene. This is after Carrie. This is after The Shining. So I'm talking the film was after The Shining, not the, not the short story. But even the short story was like a little bit into his career. He had already had some pretty huge successes. Salem's Lot was out. Um, I think this is probably around the time he was writing The Stand. Um, somehow the man was also like publishing short stories on the side because he was like, I'm not busy enough and having three children around the same time, like of the corn wild. Yeah, yeah. of the corn. <laughs> um, the guy's productivity is is still legendary, I think, for for this reason. But um, the, the movie itself felt very much like a Stephen King is super hot right now. Let's just grab something. Let's adapt it. We'll put his name all over the front of it. It'll be in the marketing. Come see the master of horror. And we're going to we're going to cash in on Stephen King's name. We're going to put his book on the dash right at the start of the movie. So you you're make sure touching, you see it. You're touching on some <laughs> major production things. Uh, we can start to break into it a little bit now if you want. OK, to. Stephen King uh, originally wrote the screenplay. And from what I could suss out, because they went the opposite way and went with a different script. And I have some things that I'll read about like specific reasons why producers wanted to go a different way that may have disgruntled Stephen King. And then okay. he asked for more money before they would, before he would allow his name to be used on the production in any way. So they paid, they had a reported like 1.5 million or something to spend in production costs. Mm -hmm. And they had to pay him like an, an additional 500,000 after they got the rights to use his name all over the material to say Stephen King's, you know, children of the corn and, and all that. Yeah. So, so that the reports say that that lowered the budget. And so there were a lot of like cost cutting oh, okay. things that went throughout. Yeah. And so I think you're picking up on like, they put his, they plastered his name all over the place because yeah. they wanted this to sell well. And interestingly, because of the budget and the success of the film, financial success, this is one of the most financial successes ever, just based on budget to, to what yeah. they recouped. Man, horror movies sometimes can really strike gold, can't they? You know, they can remain fairly low budget and just make so much money if they if they just, you know, if they catch, catch the market. And yeah. I think this is a movie that appeals to kids, uh, as we talked about, but also has adult appeal, obviously always will. But it seems like one of those movies that a lot of kids are going to want to go see because they're like, ooh, I, you know, children are the bad guys in this one. I'm into that, you know? Sure. I, I also think that you'll we'll see throughout that the, the cost cutting measures that had to be taken also kind of helped this film. So like originally we were going to see the monster. And we okay. didn't necessarily. I was kind of bummed we didn't get to see him, but then I think about the fact that it probably wouldn't look good. So look That's at the fair. effects that we got. I think I think yeah. that burrowing effect that we'll talk more about is yeah. is pretty iconic and terrifying. That's that was Reminded a good me of Tremors, effect. Yeah, <laughs> which which is a you know iconic movie. Um, let's focus a little bit on the short story before we get too down the road with the movie, because um, I know we got a lot to talk about with that. I, I'm curious to know your thoughts on it in general. Like just reading this story, um, to me it's like in line with some of what we've read from King, but also pretty different. It's a little more what I think I always imagined Stephen King's stories would be more like than what when I actually got into reading him what i like i found a lot of substance there that um i wasn't expecting mm -hmm. and that i do really admire about his work this one felt a little bit more like almost what you know i would i would imagine 
Stephen King would would be just from reputation alone. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I get that. I but I also think it's a short story, and we're not saying that a short story can't have immense substance and richness to it. But it's funny that you say that because I picked up a lot on like commentaries being made on marriage difficulties and some of these other things that you might not see from a, a, an author going no, to those I'm not lengths, saying right? the story is like, bad right yeah. and and I think it does have depth to it um I think there's a very it's a very classic setup of having a Stephen King protagonist who is unlikable mm -hmm. um and really both of our mains are pretty unlikable but uh Bert in general like he starts off the the thing thinking about how much he like hates his wife he hits her early on like he does a lot to make us not on his side. And I was thinking, like, this is such a Stephen King thing to do because now anything that happens to this guy, we're, oh, we're going to feel kind of mixed about it. It's going to be kind of like, yeah, he kind of deserves it. And then you're able to, like, kind of have more fun with the, like, evil element that's going on and kind of, like, revel in the horror. And that, to me, is why I'm getting back to, like, this is almost like, I think both versions of this are, like, campy, but in different ways. Yeah. To me, this short story is campy in a horror short story kind of way of like, I'm going to read it in a horror uh, magazine, which is funny because it was not published in a horror magazine, which we can get to. Um, but I feel like I would read this in a horror magazine and it would be like a fuck yeah, horror is a fun genre. Let's all have fun with it kind of story. Sure. Uh, yeah. You know? Yeah. And it doesn't take a lot of time to like the characters aren't super complex, but they do have yeah. the depth, like you said, like flawed characters that totally. you do root for in ways you, and you but and then and then they feel really well realized they feel like yeah. actual people right like they're yes. they're king's amazing at doing that making his characters immediately feel real i can buy that in the whenever 80s that he wrote this i assume 77 was 77 so he, he was writing it probably a little bit before that again like i think it lines up around with the time of the stand and um he had just published rage as richard bachman um what came out in 77 the guy was super prolific, um, ha always has been. But yeah, even early out of the gates, he was just so prolific. Yeah. And so for him to be writing this, a character like this, I'm like, this this does feel like th there's people out there that were like this. There's no question about it. You can buy that somebody in that scenario driving down the highway would then hit somebody and start thinking, oh, what's going on here? What kind of yeah. weird supernatural things are happening, even though it doesn't seem overly supernatural. Uh, yeah, that it didn't seem me... supernatural to me until we got to the he who is behind yeah. the the corn or whatever. <laughs> he who walks in corn. Yeah. He who he yeah. who walks uh, the line or something. The corn <laughs> corn man. He who walks behind the rows. There we go. There it is. He who is Mr. Corn Man. Jonathan uh, Davis out there. Yeah. <laughs> the way that the story set up with a couple that are on on at, at like on ends with each other it sounds like they're not only they're divorcing possibly but they they're thinking about like harming each other at times and well yeah definitely bird is at least he's he's who we're closest to throughout and this. he thinks we about how she's gonna like run off with the car and she, same thing back and forth like yeah, they don't trust, trust each her. other yeah put them in a scenario where they then have to like come back together and actually try to care about each other i think is an interesting premise yeah. um and then yeah to get to the the supernatural idea it, it, thinking about what we have to talk about when we talk about King these days is this overarching, you know, interconnected yeah. universe. And I couldn't help but draw the parallels to to it and the way yeah. that it's a it's a you know an entity that's that's influencing over children. And I kind of thought of this as like the anti uh, dairy, where like they're there they don't give in to the entity and they fight back against it. And I in see. this instance, the kids have been taken over, and they they this is what happens when. The entity gets full control and just like a whole town is yeah evil. He, he he comes back to these ideas a lot right you're talking about the interconnectivity by the way um gatlin is mentioned in it apparently it's it is a, a town that gets mentioned but it was um, written later right later yeah who knows yeah. when he started it but yeah hemingford home the town that's neighboring gatlin mm -hmm. um is the town where mother abigail lives uh in, in the stand in the stand yeah wow, and that's cool. um Apparently, also the location of the the story nineteen twenty two, which has its own adaptation on Netflix. Oh, okay. Which, which I haven't yeah, seen yet. I don't read, know that one. Yeah. Apparently, it's also Hemingford Home. We are on the precipice. I know that we are with how much we've covered First King to to put all the pieces together. If we just yeah. would read like Dark, Dark Tower, Tower. <laughs> yeah, some, some of the other stuff yeah. to put it all together. Yeah. But it's fun to kind of be on the outskirts and be like, are we are we seeing something or bits you know. and pieces? Yeah, I mean, it's just that he his stories take place in the same universe and same world at the very least, right? You know, yeah, I, how it all interconnects, I don't know. But um, uh, let's back up a little bit. This story was first published in 1977 in Penthouse. 
which I thought wow. was kind of funny, right? Um, this was back in the day where I mean, now Playboy does still publish some some fiction. In fact, didn't uh, we? Kurt, we've read a, a story that originally was published in Playboy before. Yeah, I'm sure we have. Um, I, I I have some friends who've been published in in, in Playboy, and it's like general science fiction or something. Um, and that this is the kind same kind of deal. I think back then horror was always considered kind of a transgressive genre. So I think publishing horror in a men's magazine like that, um, it kind of it kind of worked. Um, but then it was later collected in the collection called Night Shift, which is up here in the like prime position on the wall behind me. <laughs> um, I, I found an old paperback copy of this collection. I had to buy it because I looked in the table of contents and there's just like, I don't know, six or seven different stories that have been adapted into films in there. And I said, OK, well, we're probably going to cover some of this stuff. Yeah. Um, and sure enough, uh, sure enough, I get a chance to do it here. And it's just cool to like have an old paperback. I don't know. I, I like them. Um, you know, they smell weird. Yeah. <laughs> They're falling apart. This is a used copy, so it's got like stuff written in it sometimes. Like, I don't know. I like that kind of stuff, though. Yeah. There's something cool about that for sure. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just important to kind of put it in position, right? Like he, he had had a little bit of success publishing short stories to this point, was known for a few big novels, but this is still very early on in his career. Um, and I think that shows a little bit in the prose. Um, it, it, to me, it feels a little rougher than what I would expect from King. He's got some inspired images. He's got some cool moments um, where he's talking about sort of just like the the feel of the the place and the the look of things. And sometimes like, you can really tell he does have a talent for imagery. I think the characters have enough richness to them where you see, um, okay, this is this is somebody who knows what he's doing. And then just the idea itself, I think, touches on a lot of elemental primal fears that people have. Um, and I think the main one I see, I really think there's two two main ones and then they branch off from here but the first one is like fear of the next generation like fear of young people yeah i get a little bit of that of like what if the young people who come along decide they don't need us anymore or what if they decide that they don't believe what we believe and in fact they're gonna they're gonna dispense with us right like that 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 is i think kind of an innate fear as you start getting older and seeing younger people starting to become you know become important um you know, as a, as a millennial, I, I see this a little bit with like millennials kind of freaking out about Gen Z. And it's like because it's just another generation starting to come up and, and be kind of the cool new generation. And yeah. you feel like, oh, my God, I'm being replaced. Right. Yeah. You can't. I, I don't know. I don't like to get wrapped up in the whole generational thing. No, but I yeah, don't either. Yeah, but you people, see people doing it. Right. Totally. Like, yeah. I, yeah. I felt like with the time period that this was written, I think we've seen, especially in America and specifically religion is what I'm touching on religion. I'm thinking Christianity, the, the probably yeah. the most prominent in the states at this time. I think about like the the decline of Christianity that we've seen as time has come along with different generations, and the way that it's. I think that this is a fear that people possibly had of it being like tainted and twisted. Yeah, and I, I saw a lot of that represented throughout, like this idea of of religion and these children specifically being like raised in a small town where religion was very important. They without the guidance i guess there from adults anymore they were they then would turned it into worshiping another figure in this in this entity and the way that like maybe that makes them kind of like naive and susceptible yeah but just like a couple of factors and maybe there's a commentary being made there by king about like being in a small town and not experiencing the rest of the world leaves you maybe vulnerable to catching on to some of these other beliefs and ideas and things like that i agree that was the other one i was going to touch on is i think he's looking at sort of like fundamentalist, evangelical, um, rural America, where you see a lot of these communities who are Bible thumpers. You know, he there's the, there's a reason the radio comes on and we hear the fire and brimstone and they all kind of roll their eyes at it. Mm -hmm. And the disconnect, I think, between the city folk, which these two are, they're from Chicago and they're on their way to another city on the other side of the country, right? And they're just driving through small town America. And there's like a fear of that world, right? And I think he's highlighting the di the distance between those two groups and how they are kind of at odds with each other. Um, but then, yeah, I think he's he's highlighting there is, a, I think, an inherent danger to giving yourself so fully to something. And he's recognizing that if you're primed to like be such a staunch believer from day one, and then something just like twists your belief structure a little bit, somebody comes along who's very charismatic and is able to take what you believe and twist it. And then you, you all of a sudden, now that becomes your new belief and it replaces the old. Um, there's a danger in that. And in that way, this story is kind of prescient as we see, you know, a lot of modern 
Christians and like evangelical movements getting caught up in QAnon, getting caught up in a lot of like cultist type movements. Um, in some ways, I look at this and go like, wow, for this campy story, this campy movie, there is a little bit of thematic richness here. Yeah. But I will also say it's not super clean. And I, I don't know that this this sort of analogy holds up throughout. And obviously yeah. they didn't know any of this was going to happen. So I, it could, that wasn't what they were talking about. But exactly. I, I don't know. It was a little unintentional, but it did end up he wanted to, like you said, make a point about like the Bible thumpers and the people who are like closed off and closed minded. Like it's about yeah. but the dangers of it. The movie, at least, reasserts traditional Christianity as the right path at the yeah, end. Interesting. And that's not in the story. In fact, the evil kind of wins in the story. Um, yeah. But in the in the movie, it kind of reasserts that. So that's why it's a little messy. It's kind of like it's okay to be a super believer, but you got to make sure that you're believing in the one true Christian. In the God. right thing. Yeah, yeah. And again, <laughs> yeah. that comes down to like the film goers of the time. I think that that was like the the normal thing. That but but in defense of the movie, it says any God that doesn't believe in like love and compassion, and, compassion yeah. isn't a God worth believing in or something like yeah. that. So like it doesn't say the one true Christian God, but um, I think it's it's pointing out that like Christianity, if you're going to believe in it, needs to go back to its roots, which like, honestly, I, I look at today and say a lot of Christians are have gotten pretty far away from the love and compassion angles of Christianity, especially in like the more extremist groups. Like, exactly. Yeah. yeah. The I want to talk about specifically imagery from King's story and the way that he's so like transgressive, as we've talked about the the, the like uh, Jesus statue that's been like kind of co-opted and changed to look yeah. like this being that's like green moss and the eyes and mouth. And that's deliberate, right? Like it's not, it's not a, they haven't just replaced these with a new icon. They are perverting an existing icon. They are yes. literally like um, uh, crucifying people in a different kind of way with corn. It's like a corn crucifixion, yeah. but it is still on a cross. So it, it's like a perversion of this um, Christian belief. And I think the movie plays into that more and actually, Kind of pushes it even more to like a pagan territory demonic territory um there's hints of that in the story but i don't, it just doesn't really have time to like really start to like develop the belief structure that much yeah i just thought that it was really good imagery too with like it's like a smirking jesus on yeah. like all like natured and corned out and stuff a lot of that uh, made it into the movie look pretty good too <laughs> yeah yeah i mean I, I thought the 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 story stands out again for being uh pretty brutal at times there was a part where uh I mean, he stabs Malachi, he kills Malachi and the uh, Bert does in the story. Um, he's described as gobbling as his like running around with his neck cut open, mm -hmm. um, which is a pretty not only pretty brutal, but also I thought like a sly wink at like Thanksgiving and the corn and him like kind of knowing oh, what harvest. kind of the, yeah. what kind of story this was going to be, what kind of year, like time of year you're going to be reading it and watching it. He's like, oh, now I'm going to have this kid gob being a gobbler as he's running around with his throat cut. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not, but I, th I thought of that. <laughs> it fits, you know? Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, the, again, at the end, the the evil wins in this version. Um, we see both of our main characters fall to it. And I think the, the story, like, we get a little bit of the kids at the end, which I was a little surprised that we were going to dive into them. Um, and honestly, that little section does a lot for, like, what we where later get in the movie. Mm -hmm. Um and then, uh, yeah, and then it ends with like the the, the corn is the corn is pleased <laughs> at the end of the story. It's like, yes, <laughs> I just there's so much corn going on here in this story. And I couldn't especially with the film, the like if I was around this much corn for the time that it takes to produce yeah. a film, I'd be like, I fucking hate corn now. Like it's it, there's everything's corned out. There's like cornfields everywhere. Things are stitched into people's like yeah. little corn bowl. So everything is corn related going forward. Anything we mention, just imagine that's made of corn. Yeah, I'm really sort. trying not to ever uh, level a certain criticism at this movie because it would just be too obvious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, uh, do you have any more thoughts about this story or do you want to move into the movie and then we can continue to make comparisons? I think let's move into the movie. So uh, I'll just talk about the filmmaker a little bit here. George Keith Fritz Kirsch is an American film director, writer and producer. Uh, he's best known for directing the horror film Children of the Corn and the drama Tough Turf. So it seems that this is kind of the, the main thing that he's known for. Kind of what he's known for, yeah. Like I said before, I think based on the fact that they had to cut the budget pretty frequently, some smart choices were made. Now, there were times that you could tell it was a low-budget film from the 80s. Um, it, it Just like the look of it. Yeah. Some You know that they didn't have a lot of time to film it. I'm telling you, man, I did not expect campy B-movie horror, which is what this really felt like yeah. watching it. And I was like, this isn't the reputation I thought this movie had. Right. I was surprised. 
There were a few times that it earns its reputation with like the special effects makeup on Isaac when he comes back and then he says like it wants you to Malachi like that yeah. moment that that's an iconic like really great moment and then still like, super I talk, campy though <laughs> like, very campy but yeah. like yeah I guess it, it reputation as far as like it being terrifying I thought it was gonna I mean, be but... this brutal movie from the reputation I heard like I don't know like maybe I'm well, it's just it was just the kids I was talking to yeah but well, um, I, I think I was like one of those movies that I was like I don't know if I want to watch that I hear it's really gonna be people tough of our i think people of our age and our gen, like generation is like a term we've been talking about but yeah uh had a, a lot of people had the same experience i think I, you know it's one of those things that people talk about with hush tones and yeah and it's like going around on the playground or whatever like out on you know on the track at the gym in gym like people are like oh my god this movie sleepover movie all that kind yeah. of stuff and it builds up like a reputation especially because it's known as stephen king's children of the corn too right and maybe that's what we're touching on here right like Stephen King just had such a reputation for with kids. Like I, I've talked about this in our very first episode. I think we ever covered in it. I, that was a book I heard about from my friend who had read it. And it was talked about in such a way that it was like, you will never be the same. If you read this book, like it's that terrifying. It will give you nightmares the rest of your life. And that was the reputation Stephen King had just as a writer. And what's impressive is that like outside of that, that is true for a child too. And then outside of that, I think when you read his, like even just reading this and we've talked about like, this isn't his best work necessarily, but no. I got, I enjoyed myself. Like I, I was pulled yeah. into the story. I, the characters felt well, well realized the threat felt fun. And like, yeah. it was kind of that campy sort of story, but it, it's so wild that he can live in both worlds. It's like, He's not, he is the master of horror, especially to children who, who like, I imagine kids who saw it chapter one, something like that. Like, that's the same kind of thing that we were experiencing with the original it and like, you know, Pet Cemetery and some of those mm. other ones. We talked about Stephen King as a writer and his history. We can't go into all of it. There's so much about his, you know, backstory. But one of the things we've touched on a few times is how there's this story that when he was a young child, he went out playing with a friend one day, came back, couldn't talk, was traumatized. And then it took him a little while to figure out that like his friend had been hit by a train. And he says that he does not remember this. He has no mm -hmm. memory of it. So it, he doesn't think that it, like informed his writing. But time and again, I mean, look at Pet Cemetery and look at this. Like we're seeing kids getting hit by vehicles. There's all this danger to children constantly. To me, this is somebody who grew up around children being in danger. And even if he doesn't remember that, I feel like that's deeply in there, right? And it's something he had to at least heard about and been like imagining what it would have been like. And it's kicking around in there. Yeah. And he um, realizes like the children endangered, like how how all of us react to that as well. And, mm -hmm. and people, I would argue at the like, weren't really writing like that at the time. Like he he made a name for himself by putting children in danger and writing these stories. And ultimately, he part of gets that a transgressive nature. Sure. And he gets a rap of like not having great endings and this and that. And but like his premises are unbelievable. And I yeah. think you see that time again about how universal they are and the way. Well, that... it, it's premise and execution, right? Like it, a premise is nothing if you can't execute it. But he does execute these ideas and he does them in a way that's fun to read. Yeah. I was thinking about while I was reading this, how massive Stephen King is and how well respected he is. The two seem at odds with each other. Like he, he like in a lot of cases, people turn on on people who get very popular. Right. And people yeah. have turned on Stephen King. There's no question. They definitely but, have. And in fact, it, the, the more you get into like writer circles, sure, you'll find a lot of people who give it up for Stephen King. I have a lot of respect for him, but you'll see a lot of people who are who are very dismissive and you know, and there's nothing wrong happen. with that. It's also a taste thing, right? It, but sure. but more so, I just mean and like, anybody who's that popular is a target. Like they're going to be. Yeah, because everybody has an opinion about him. Yeah, right? I just think it's still impressive for him to have the reputation and the longevity that he's had and, and yeah. all of these stories. I haven't read a Stephen King story that I was like, I actively hated that, you know, like yeah. I've read we've read great. We've read good. We've read pretty good. Yeah. And ultimately, more often than not, he just puts out really quality stories. And so that's why he's a master of storytelling. In my yeah, opinion. I, I thought this story was solid. It would be on the lower end of the stuff I've read from him. But it was kind of encouraging in a way because I see like him being kind of human here. And like he's crank. I feel like he cranked this story out and submitted it and like didn't didn't do much in the way of revision. Now, maybe that's wrong, but this just felt like he's off right in the stand. This isn't his main focus. He had a random idea one day, sat down and did his usual like 3000 words a morning that he used to do back in the day and just cranked this thing out, sent it off to Penthouse. 
and made some money on it, but like didn't think much of it. And then it gets in, it goes into his collection. It gets made into a movie. And now 50 years later or whatever, 40 years later, we're talking about it on a podcast. Yeah. And there's like, like this seven, was never meant to be that. <laughs> there's like seven sequels and all that kind of yeah. stuff too. Yeah. It's never, it's, it was never meant, it was never meant to hold up to this level of scrutiny, but the fact so. that it, but the fact that it does in yeah. some ways is, is impressive. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And again, it's also kind of encouraging to me as a, like someone who's writing and, and has just published some short fiction at this point, hoping to get a novel out. You know, it's like you can have early work that um, can end up mattering in the long term, even if it's not necessarily going to be what you're known for or like your crowning achievement. Right. Like you're going to you're going to ascend to new heights beyond it, but you can still look back and like see some see some talent there for King. Mm. And like, I just want to believe that's true for a lot of authors out there who are who are trying to break in. Well, he's a great example too of like artists for artists in general of just like just doing it right. It's yeah. like you can't get wrapped around the axle and be like, I'm never going to do it because I want it to be perfect in every way. And, it's, and and there's there's a school of thought that that caters to that, and I think that's important too. But he's yeah. the example of like just do it and just see what it. happens. It's okay if it's imperfect. Yeah. This this story is imperfect. So talking a little bit about the film, uh, I mentioned King wrote the original draft of the screenplay, focused more on Bert and Vicky, and depicted more history on the uprising of the children in Gatlin. Uh, the script was disregarded in favor of George Goldsmith's screenplay, which featured more violence and a more conventional narrative structure. Goldsmith said that King's script started with 35 pages of Bert and Vicky arguing in, the, in a car, so he decided <laughs> to tell the story visually through the eyes of two new characters, children, Job and Sarah. Character is so important to storytelling, right? Like that yeah. that's... And I, th I, I like to think that Hollywood is, has gotten smarter about this as time has gone on. But there was a period of time where Hollywood was like premise, premise, premise. And I think it's it's cool to see like King standing by these two characters that he wrote, again, a short story that he probably cranked out and was like, yeah, but this is this is the core of the story. Like you sell the characters, yeah. then you put them in the scenario. Thirty five pages maybe is excessive. I don't know. But ultimately, I did find Bert and Vicky to be slightly less interesting here, even as they are more developed here than probably we got in the short story. Um, they, they definitely simplified them. They made Bert into a doctor, which I will admit explains his ability to like, look at a body and see that it's been, had his throat cut. And, and you know what I mean? Like all of that makes a little more sense if you're a doctor than just some random dude. <laughs> um, but their, their relationship is simplified into being sort of the couple in love who is now caught up in a horror movie and that we've seen a bunch of times. Like it's, it's, it's less memorable than the, the story version was, which at least felt different. Uh, I just gotta say it here, Linda Hamilton, uh, this is right around the same time as Terminator. Same uh, year. The movie came, comes out the same year. I thought she was super underutilized in this movie. Like I was- Very it was, much so. I, I was happy to see her, but she is sidelined for much of the movie. She doesn't well, do a whole lot. I really felt like she could have shared the spotlight, had more heroic moments. We know she's super capable of that. Um, and she just felt super underserved here. It's funny because like the dancing scene in the beginning where she's waking him up, like multiple yeah. scenes throughout, I was like, she has more charisma and she's more interesting on screen than, than the lead is by she far. Should have, she should yeah. have probably been the lead. At the very least, they could have shared it more. But yeah, cool to see, you know, early Linda Hamilton yeah. right before. Very, I was surprised. I had no idea she was in that movie. Neither yeah, did I. I had completely the corner, forgotten. Yeah. Who knows? When do you think you saw this for the first time, by the way? Like I would say like late 90s, probably How early old 2000s, somewhere around like 10. So yeah. very young. Pretty when young, you yeah. did see it interesting yeah. i mean tin's pretty young to be seeing yeah. this movie this thing oh, this is what i mean like sleepover type movie i know for a fact that i saw this at a friend's house like this is the kind of thing that like you you went to a friend's house and i bet somebody at 10 had this VHS movie is copy. very scary <laughs> exactly and it was yeah. i remember how scary it was actually that's a yeah. great point to make is i remember how creepy these characters are the kid when he first shows up in the window at the diner <laughs> yeah. dude Full, all the Isaac. way terrifying you can you imagine a yeah. room of like t you know five ten year olds and, and like yeah. we're sneaking around watching this movie that right, dude like... his name's john franklin i'm looking at the cast um that guy as a tw he looked like he was 12 going on 35 totally. like, i don't know how it's possible um but he looked so interesting and then like the way they dressed him and everything he was super creepy from the jump um i i thought his performance was was pretty iconic and it was interesting to me that he actually wasn't the like main antagonist throughout that was much more malachi he was just like more of a zealot he was like the religious yeah, zealot he was their religious guy but he wasn't the one going around stabbing people that was no. malachi yes you know ch children actors you know i, I i'll get i give them i grant them that it's a very difficult thing to ask this guy seemed like he was holding back a very like surfer bro los angeles accent the whole time i don't know if, like i'm i'm 100 right on that but it felt like he was struggling to talk 
in a way that fit this setting. Um, and then just throughout, like I, he was like over emoting and it was just like, I, I found his, his performance to be particularly difficult uh, yeah. to like, believe. I think I read that he was also like 24. Uh, oh, interesting. Time, so he's not so a child. <laughs> not necessarily. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I, it's also Courtney, Courtney Gaines, by the way. And again, yeah. no, hate. he's clearly young and, and I'm sure he went on to do better things. And I do think that people found this person to be ter- just as terrifying. I think people found him to be the violent side of things. And I remember that, yeah. you know, he had a good like, he looked the part. Yeah. It was when he talked. It was when he talked that I wasn't as on board. <laughs> I mean, children found him terrifying, by the way. That's, yeah, yeah, that was yeah. my <laughs> recollection of it. Uh, I did like that at times. Um, uh, Bert would just like towards the end, he's just like, "Fuck this, I'm an adult." And he just starts like knocking a bunch of kids around. <laughs> I was gonna that make a commentary on that. I was gonna make a comment because I was like, you know that joke about like how many how many like first or second graders like you know outside oh, of how fucked up it would be or something. How yeah, many yeah. could you fight? And all I, all I could think of is, is this guy clearly was like, I can fight like 50, 50 yeah. second graders. He's like, I'm in, I'm sliding this church of children, but I am not threatened because I am yeah. an adult. And he does yeah. start just bodying kids. Like he just starts yeah. beating the hell out of kids and you're like, oh, sh- this is pretty fucked up, right? This is like a uh, well, they're they're these kids are, you know, yeah, I mean, they're trying to kill him, right? Like they've, they've tried to stab him and stuff. So, you know, but I, the fight noble. at the end with Malachi, he like gets over top of him. and He's just wailing. <laughs> he like, slaps him around. He slaps yeah. him like 10 times. Yeah. yeah. And then he like, and then someone's the like, oh, Malachi's dead. And I'm like, no, he's not. He just got slapped a bunch. Yeah. King was unhappy with the changes, but Hal Roach, who was a producer, went with Goldsmith's script. King and Goldsmith debated Goldsmith's approach during a phone conversation during which King argued that Goldsmith did not understand the horror genre and, and Goldsmith countered that King did not recognize that film is a visual external experience, unlike novels and short stories, which are internal and only visual in the reader's mind. I mean, we talk about this all the time, right? Yep. These, these distinctions. It's hard to know what they were exactly arguing over and what you know what I mean? Like we've seen yeah. movies that can do the internal really well. Um, so sometimes it is a little bit limiting to say like, oh, no, movies can't do internal at all. And we know that's not really true. Right. But of course, it is broadly true that it is more an external genre. So like they're both making when points compared there. But, to, yeah. When compared to novels, for sure, or story, just, you know, the yeah. written word. This did feel a lot more cookie cutter to me. And it, like it, as much as it is like a novel um I should say unique idea just for clarity's sake. Um, it, it, it's a cool idea on film, but like the the structure of it being this couple faced with this supernatural element, faced with this culty attack, by the way it ends, it really kind of came back around and ended in a very expected way, which I'm sure we'll get there. <laughs> we will get there, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it definitely does. So moving into the plot here, the film is set in the fictional town of Gatlin, Nebraska, an agricultural community surrounded by huge cornfields. When the corn crop fails one year, the townsfolk turn to prayer to ensure a successful harvest. However, nine-year-old Isaac Croner takes all of the Gatlin children into the cornfields and indoctrinates them into a religious cult based on a bloodthirsty deity called He Who Walks Behind the Rose. Isaac and his subordinate Malachi lead the children in a revolution, murdering all of the adults in town as human sacrifices. Children Job and his sister Sarah are uninvolved in the sacrifices, having not attended the meetings with the other children. Three years later, Vicki and her boyfriend Bert travel through the rural Nebraska on their way to Seattle, where Bert will start work as a doctor. A boy named Joseph tries to flee Gatlin, but is attacked in the corn. He stumbles out into the road, and Bert accidentally runs him over. However, Bert discovers that his throat was cut beforehand. Searching for help, the couple finds Dial, an elderly mechanic and the last adult in Gatlin. He refuses them service, as he has agreed to supply the children with fuel in exchange for his life. Malachi breaks the pact and murders him after Dial tries to steer the couple away from Gatlin. We get a little bit of this behind-the-scenes stuff with the kids themselves. Um, I thought that signaled what kind of like the campiness of this movie pretty early on. In particular, one moment where the kids grab the the like guy behind the counter and force his hand into one of those meat slicers. Yeah. Now we don't actually see anything other than like some blood spray into the face of somebody, but like I was like, why would they do that if they're just going to kill these people? Like it makes no sense. The reason to do that is just to be over the top and extreme. And then um, I think that signaled to me, oh, okay, it's that kind of movie. Right. Like we're it's going to be a little bit ridiculous at times. And sure enough, I think that that held true. It definitely is. I think to fans of this film would say like it's unapologetically that like that's yeah. the point of it in ways. Um, yeah. So I agree with that. You know, it, it's 
it's almost like borderline funny at times. Yeah, and I think that's more of a me problem. This is something I've talked about in the past, but I'll, I'll revisit it here. Like, I've had a shifting relationship with, like, campiness in, in my movies for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and often I just don't, I, I don't really like it. And I know this is some people love campy movies. Like, it's their shit. Um, I do think I've come around on it some as I've started to, like, categorize them differently and try not to compare them too much to, like, more, like, serious, I guess, films. It's like... These films are trying to have fun. They're unapologetically reveling in the genre elements that they're presenting. They're not trying to convince you of their realistic, you know, depiction of anything, really. Yeah. It's just about being a fun Halloween movie. It's loving being in the genre. It's playing with the, the tropes of the genre. It's, right. it's, you know, and you could say that it's almost meta in, in certain ways, too. It like, is. It's playing with the audience and audiences. It's like we're all in on it. We're all in on it together, yeah. right? Like we all know why we're here. Like you said, I think it is smart to. You're not gonna. I don't think you're gonna compare this to The Shining. Yeah. Uh, in in the same way of like level of detail that was brought right. to the production. And I think for a long time I struggled with that, right? Like, because to me it's like I look at like The Shining. I'm like that's a perfect genre movie. It's a great. It's like one of my favorite horror movies of all time. And so I'm like, why are we going to make a horror movie and not try and be good like that? <laughs> you know, yeah. why are we instead going to be goofy and like, and I just had to realize, I like, guess it's, it's just a different approach to that, to filmmaking and to storytelling, I should say, because fiction does this too. And not everybody's Kubrick and like, there's, there's uh grittiness and like, there, that's one of the, you know, you think but of also, like an evil dead. This, like, this filmmaker isn't trying to be Kubrick too. You know what I mean? Like he's not. Yeah. It's it's like it's not only is he not he's not trying to be he's not going for that. Right, right. But and, and that brings up like people like Raimi with Evil Dead and, and like the super gritty nature of a horror movie and like reveling in that. And, and I think that's all wrapped up in fans of the genre appreciate just like the craft, the creation, yeah. a lot of that kind of stuff as well. So horror movies, are, you know, I, I like horror audiences because they're like they're just down to, to check anything out and to honestly like a lot of a lot of different stuff i i did have one other thing i wanted to mention uh before i should have said this uh, while they kind of went back and forth and had some some disagreements goldsmith did credit king with being extremely gracious when when asked about the film in media interviews stating in diplomatic ways that he felt the new approach to be lacking so it's cool to hear that like once once king get, got paid he then went out and was like yeah in the same way that we see often He'll talk well about some adaptations that we, we I'm sure that he has misgivings about. You can look at it that way, but you can also look at it and say, like, he's also kind of said he didn't like the way this movie was done. You know what I mean? Like he didn't mm -hmm. he didn't also like completely shy away from it. So he's found an interesting road to walk where he can still say, like, you know, he's rooting for this adaptation. He thinks it's pretty good. But then also say, I have my misgivings. And I think, yeah. you know, with what happened with early on with just shining like that just kind of. Definitely taught I him a lesson, I think. Taught him that he, yeah. he is um, not always going to be on board with the adaptations he gets, but I think he recognizes that they're a huge reason why he is as popular as he is. Yeah, and look how much money this movie made. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, it made for, for how much they put into it, and it's successful. It's part of his oeuvre. It's part of his overarching, like, legacy yeah. at this point. It's funny because, I you know, I didn't realize this was a Stephen King thing. It's only until we did the podcast and we were looking it up did I realize Children of the Corn was a Stephen King story? Really? Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, you know, it makes sense now, but yeah, you know, I, well, probably also because you hadn't seen it. You exactly. Know. Th these these kids, by the way, they do the thing where they're supernaturally stealthy. I knew for sure, like that's the one thing I knew going into this movie is that we were gonna have some supernaturally stealthy children, and we definitely did. I was a little, you know, I'm, it's just funny to think about like what I, my expectations were. I kind of thought the children of the corn were going to be like ghosts or something mm. or spirits or, you know what I mean? Like maybe they could take corporeal form, but they were like the dead or something. Like, you know, I, I thought there was something more supernatural going on with them directly. Yeah. Whereas instead they're people, but they're cult. worshiping like a, a, a culty, a, 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 a cult figure almost lovecraftian deity of some kind yeah i haven't read a lot of lovecraft uh, and but for the podcast i now have and but i've been in i've seen a lot of lovecraftian things like i i've seen the influence of lovecraft throughout sci-fi and horror and so it's really interesting to place a lot of these entities that he's created for this massive overarching universe and start thinking about them as lovecraft inspired because they they are well, these like god-like yeah. beings 
King has talked about Lovecraft was a very influential author for him growing up. Um, I also read a little story that that reminds me of, of um, when this, uh, this like, what do you call him? Like a, like a bookmobile salesman Mm -hmm. came to town one day and he said, do you have any books that tell the story of how kids really are? And the guy was like, "Uh, yeah, here you go. (laughs) And he gave him Lord of the Flies, uh, which we haven't covered yet, but we could. I have read. I don't know if you've read if you've read I that have. book. Okay, yeah, 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 me too. Apparently, that was a super influential novel for King as well. Like he really liked the way it showed it showed children as being vicious and and um you know you know how we often see children in King's books. Also, apparently, Castle Rock, he borrowed from that that book. Like that's what they call the rock. They call it the Castle Rock or something. And that's like his. That's like his like his town uh, that yeah. a lot of his stuff is like, set around. It's like, you know, an area. I'm familiar with it in King's work, but I, I didn't remember it in Lord of the Flies. I read that today. So I was yeah. like, oh, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to mention that. It's interesting. So yeah, you're talking about his influences, you know, they're all over the place. And, and I think Lovecraft is an important one when we start talking about these weird gods that people are worshiping that are like supernatural entities of Cults. unknown origin. Yeah. yeah, that's that's very Lovecraftian. So we've talked a lot about that first part. Let's move into the next one. Vicky and Bert explore the abandoned town and find Sarah alone in a house. Malachi and his followers capture Vicky and take her to the cornfield where they place her on a cross to be sacrificed. Bert enters the church where a congregation of children led by a girl named Rachel are performing a cultural birthday ritual for Amos by drinking his blood from a pentagram-shaped cut on his body. Amos has turned 19, so is considered old enough for his passing, joining their god in the cornfield. Rachel stabs Bert, who is rescued by Job. They hide in a fallout shelter with Sarah. Isaac scolds Malachi for killing Dial, their only source of fuel. Malachi takes over, tired of Isaac's preaching, and orders Isaac to be sacrificed instead of Vicky. Isaac warns that sacrificing him will break their pact with he who walks behind the rose and the children will be punished. This day and age, it's funny to go back and watch a whole plot built around two characters needing a phone. Yeah, <laughs> love it. Like, desperately needing a phone, and then have characters go like, we don't have a phone, yeah. and, and having well, that today's day like, and age, it's just, yeah. where's the closest signal? I need yeah. signal for my phone. Driving so. around looking for signal. You could still do it in a way, but I just thought that was funny. And then um, a couple other interesting moments. We got we have what has to be a shining reference, right? Lyndall Hamilton's face against the door, axe yeah. comes through. Felt like uh, it, Malachi. Yeah. It's like, okay, this is definitely shining reference. And this is only a couple yeah. four years later. Already a massive movie, I think. Yeah. Um, and and wanting to wanting to like capitalize on that. They probably put it in the freaking trailer. You wanna bet? I bet. Um, yeah. <laughs> um you know, the, the glint of the knife. I don't know if, if you were noticing that too, but every time Malachi pulled out that blade, he would like turn it so that the light would hit it and it would gleam. You know, what's funny about that is I, I actively thought, man, those are, that's a fun shot to put in a horror movie period. Yeah. I don't care who you are. But and do it once. You don't do need to once. do it every yeah. time the kid pulls out the knife, which it, I think it's like three to four times. Well, one we of my favorites of all time is in Shaun of the Dead where he does it and it's like too reflective. That movie's brilliant uh, because so it good. plays, it plays with all of these kind of things in a really clever way. They, I thought also them deciding to split up was pretty inexplicable. Um, again, it's just like, we're just in a horror movie, so don't think about it too much, but they're, everything's been super creepy. There's nobody in this town. They're in this house. Everything's weird. Nobody's around. There are no adults. They find a random child. Yeah. And all of a sudden Bert's like, well, I'm going to go walk into town. You stay here. It, like, I'm like, what, why are we doing this? Why would you ever, I'm just going to leave my wife here with this random kid. And I'm going to walk into this abandoned town on my own. And this is a good place to start talking about deviations because that is different from how it happens in the book. In the book, they're together. They go yep. into the town and he goes into a store or something. She right? doesn't want to go in because she's too afraid. She wants to stay. She wants to leave. And he he's like, fuck it. No, I'm going in. And then he um, I think he takes the keys so that she can't drive off because he's afraid she's going to leave him. Right. Because, and, again, and their it, relationship's not great. In the, in the story. And it leads <laughs> to a really creepy scene that that would have been great to see, which is all the kids are like are descending on her in the car while she's honking the horn. And yeah. he's like, he's like, oh, I need to get back out there. And he's like frozen by paralyzed by fear with these kids just bashing in the car and breaking yeah. the car. And I'm like, why would that visually that's that makes a ton of sense to film that scene. Yeah. It said she's captured off when they're separated, of course. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, she's she is her whole thing is weird. Like they put her on the cross, but then they take her down and they replace her with with um, Isaac. Because the, the, oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's Isaac because the. um. 
the kids have this like inner conflict, right? Um, mm-hmm. Where Malachi is kind of trying to like usurp power. But I'm like, really, are they that like pressed for crosses that they can't like have them both up there? And then he wants to take her down and like use her as bait um, mm-hmm. to get the other guy to come out. But like, she doesn't do anything the rest of the movie. And, and in fact, she's so passive and like, even like later when she escapes, he like yells at her to go to the barn, and she like has a moment where she's just standing there like looking dazed, and he has to like tell her twice, and then she's like, "Oh, I guess I'll go," and then she runs off. Like very weird. And then like the only other thing she does is like at the end of the movie, she like turns into this mother role, which man, we can get there at the end. But I was very frustrated with with what they did with Linda Hamilton. I was like, she's so badass. She could have done so. I want to see her kicking some kids' ass. That would have been interesting <laughs> for sure. And she could have too. I know she could have. Totally I've seen it. Have. Now, uh, admittedly, she did put on a lot of muscle between Terminator One and Terminator Two. That sure. was when she became the Linda, Linda Hamilton that we like know today. That is that is very true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did read that Linda Hamilton had some misgivings about the character. Like she she talked about the character and and didn't like some of the changes here and there. So yeah. I imagine that's Good for true. Her. Yeah. Yeah. They made her kind of bland. There's a church scene that we get. But it's much different than the one in the book. The book, it's like nobody's really there. In this one, yeah, they're doing he, like a he reads ritual. This, um, he reads this like list of ages of like when these kids kids die. He like puts the whole thing together. Right away, yeah. He immediately, he's like, I know exactly what happened. I'm just imagining it, but it is this, what happened. This I'm just imagining. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I'm just imagining. Yeah, in the short story. He's like, I'm just imagining these kids, like all of a sudden deciding they're worshiping the corn and they're going to kill everybody when they hit a certain, you know, above a certain age. And he puts that all together from just reading a list of names with like birth and deaths. Like, that's it. Yeah. Little unbelievable King, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I did. I read that uh, some of the, the filmmakers felt that, some of the changes they made were to make the story more believable than King's because there were some conveniences and some, yeah. I guess Him they didn't being able believe... to recognize that the kid's throat was cut yeah. was a bit of a stretch, just like a layman. The fact that you would even inspect the body that closely is a stretch to me. Yeah. Um, and he wouldn't just think, Oh my God, I killed a kid and that, and that'd be the end of it. You know, they also felt the time jump. Uh, there was a 10 year time gap from the time that the, the town murdered all the adults. Uh, to, they to made then it three instead when they made it three instead. So a couple of yeah. changes like that, which, don't really change the story that much, in my opinion. Yeah, that uh, was, like yeah. those two specifically. Uh, I guess it's smart to have the doctor for that reason. But so so yeah, that church seems very different here. Though we get like a, yeah. a ritual happening, made it way more witchy and like like you said, like demonic in ways, which kind of goes against what I would assume. This enti- or maybe this is the entity leaning into that. This this yeah. he who walks. There was uh, an interesting part where he's like. Where, what are you talking about? It was written in what this? And he holds up the Bible and he's like, it's, you know, are you only taking certain parts? And he like throws it on the ground. I'm like, are they doing that though? Like it was unclear to me in the movie. It felt like they were just like completely off in their own, like different religion that they had determined. But in the story, it was much more like a perversion of Christianity had been, had been twisted. He specifically says they like took everything of the new Testament out of the Bible and were like worshiping the old Testament only. Yeah, and that made me think that maybe he who walks behind the rose. I started thinking about this entity. Now, of course, probably not of this world, came to right. to try to feed on whatever you know, life force. These well, they mentioned I guess the hell in the movie a couple times, which which made me think demonic. I thought they were playing with demonic demonic possibly which is like a it's a shorthand for audiences but at the same time it doesn't i feel like there's hell isn't like actually pointed to in king's stories very often i feel like it's more so like this lovecraft something entity else thing. yeah which is uh, more so, interesting to me yeah it, so it's feeding yeah. on the people yeah, that the idea that this is it. just satan coming in and like fucking with some christians yeah it's yeah. less interesting to me i want to talk about he who walks behind the rose in the in the film the way they were gonna like i said they were gonna show this creature but instead they went with this like burrowing earthy thing. And I read how they how they actually achieved that was was pretty cool. Special effects artist Wayne Beauchamp revealed that it was accomplished thanks to a special device called the turtle, a wheelbarrow bucket flipped upside down with added wheels. The device was set in rails in a trench attached to a pulley system connected to a tractor and then covered in a tarp with a layer of dirt on top uh the tractor would pull forward and the turtle would move beneath the earth creating a mound of earth that traveled from one point to another um and the trench ended in a sharp hill giving the illusion that the creature beneath was diving deeper into the ground 
I think this is the same kind of stuff they did for Tremors, man. I think it was a very similar effect. That's pretty cool. I wonder if they got it from this movie. I don't remember what year Tremors came out, but maybe I'm they did. I'm not sure. Yeah, you're yeah. right. It's another 80s movie, so maybe it was around the same time. Around it, That's yeah. cool. Now, now that I, effect looked good, but some of the other effects, not so good, in my opinion. The special effects of like any of the lights that they did. Now, I, I want to give them credit because they made it bigger than just like a, like a dude in a suit. I yeah. think that that makes it for like more creepy and I like the imagination that we can draw because yeah. after at some point we start seeing it roll in as like clouds and storms and things like that. That was always weird. It's weird, but I like it more than seeing a dude in a suit. Agreed. Now, yeah. I, so a dude in a suit, I agree. Um, I, I felt like they could have done something and kept it fairly obscured kept it behind the the corn and just yeah. moving and like just the shape and you feel like you they kind of did maybe that. you just see the eyes yeah because it talks about the eyes a lot in the story they um, did a lot of pov of the creature looking through the corn in the film that I would say. yes yeah. that they did um we got these like cult like the clouds took on a like red sh color at the end i wasn't sure what was going on in that what was being applied with that um it looked like they were just like animating by like literally like um uh, Superimposing hand, hand drawn superimposed stuff, right? Yeah, that's what it looked, looked like, like to it, me. Mostly, yeah. That those types of special effects where they're adding stuff over top of the film, colors yeah. and and more, you know, clouds and things yeah. like that. There let's, was a let's moment. Read the, let's the, read the final bit because I think we're getting yeah. to a lot of this final stuff. That night, Bert sneaks into the cornfield to rescue Vicky. During Isaac's sacrifice, a supernatural light appears and devours him. Bert overpowers Malachi and convinces the children to abandon the cult and run. Isaac reappears, revived by he who walks behind the rose, informing Malachi that he wants you too. Isaac kills him. A storm appears, and Bert and Vicky shelter the children in a barn. Reading from Job's Bible, Vicky realizes that the cornfield must be destroyed by fire in order to stop the false god. Bert tosses a Molotov cocktail into the field, setting it alight and destroying the demon along with Isaac. The couple returns to the car with Job and Sarah to leave Gatlin, but finds it disabled. Rachel attacks Bert, but Vicky knocks her out, and they depart with the children on foot. This this is like where the the, the effects are coming in that we're talking about. Story starts taking some interesting turns. Um, it does get very biblical at the end. It's like, oh, the 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 secret to killing this thing we 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 learn it from the Bible, and it's like you're just burning it. It's not really that imaginative, but okay. <laughs> um, and then there's like really elaborate sequence of them trying to like pump gasoline into the like watering structure of the field. Yeah. And then th for some reason, this Molotov cocktail that he throws and doesn't go off. go off. It's just sitting there burning. <laughs> and the kid goes running over, that grabs kid. it, picks it up, runs it all the way back to him, hands it to him and says, throw it right this time. Yeah. And he's like, okay. And he throws it again. And this time it works. So I was like, what the that fuck? kid, man, there were so many times where I was like, what is happening? And they gave him little one liners too, where yeah. he kept being like, starts bizarrely just calling him Joby out of the, out of the blue. <laughs> I, I'm like, yeah. when did we establish you could just call this kid Joby? And then like his sister also calls him Joby at that point. And I'm like, all right, there's one point where he like runs out. And like his truck, he like helps him get out because the the corn is all wrapping around yeah, yeah. our main character. And he comes in, like helps him out of there. Rips the Job rips him out, and then he's like, "Get the hell out of here, kid! Go back!" And Job's just like, "Well, shucks." Yeah, and he's like, "Oh, I'm sorry. I sh I didn't know you didn't want my help or something." And I was yeah. like, "It was a bunch of stuff like that that they kept adding to funny. the script." I was like, "What's happening here?" This kid uh, is like trying to help, I guess. Become yeah. very comedic though. Like he's like darkly like I don't know. I guess they've been through some stuff. And then uh. That brings me to also to the the final scene where they go back to the car. And I was like, what what was the, I guess they could go check. I guess they needed the map. That was probably yeah. the main reason. But I just felt like that final scene, I was like, don't even show that. Just just have them yeah. get away, walk off. Well, the they sunset. wanted the, they wanted the last scare, man. You're right. They wanted, yeah. they wanted her to jump out from the backseat. Yeah. And, and then you got to knock her out and then we'll yeah. just leave her in the car. And then we get the final line of like, oh, we'll send her a get well soon card from Seattle. And then their plan is to walk 19 miles with these two kids. Um, that's going to be tough, but I guess doable, but uh, it's going to be rough. Um, and, and again, this is a, a part where I felt like she's Vicky kind of takes on this mother role. It kind of looks like they've created a family. It's a return to traditional values, um, yeah. you know, and, and the, 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 the family, the found family at the end. This is all expected stuff to me. This is all very tropey um, mm -hmm. and, and not very interesting in my opinion. Yeah. So there's a few things at the end. Like I said, he who walks behind the rose. Uh, I like some of the effects they did for it. The one that consumes Isaac, not good. Not good. Uh, I did not like that one. But yeah. when he comes back and he's all gray, I, well, he I did like He also shoots that. him into the air. What was that? It consumes him and then all of a sudden it goes 
it looks like he gets shot out of a cannon straight yeah. into the air. I was like, what's yeah. just happened? I was so confused. Yeah. So he he's like sacrificed basically. Then he comes. Then he comes back, back as a zombie. Kills Malachi. It yeah. looks like a zombie. Yes. It's just a few bizarre scenes. I I want to talk about this. Let's just start shifting into our final section yeah. here, which is which we prefer. And I'm just gonna roll this right in per, right now. Okay. Um, I prefer the way that King's story ends because it like I like some horror to not have hope. I like the idea of there being stories where there there's something some entity in the middle of nowhere that no one knows about that's that's lurking and doing bad things is is really creepy and really a really cool way to leave it this very like you said traditional values ending it sounds it feels expected it feels samey to a lot of stuff i've seen and in that way like it kind of takes away any the, anything that i felt like it was building through the first two acts the third act kind of was like interesting finale i think interesting visually they burned the field and there's some stuff yeah. that that's fun but well, uh, it, it left me kind of feeling like, okay, this is like an ending that even Stephen King would disapprove of. Yeah, and, I agree. And uh, they better. I wonder if he gets like, you know, blamed for this ending when this is not he probably how the story does. Ends. Yeah. He probably does. And this Stephen King's ending is so cool because like these cultists like when they kill they kill he who lurks or whatever he who walks behind the rose is lurking around and ultimately like consumes these people. Yeah, I don't know if we described it, but basically, um, Vicky gets captured. Bert goes looking for her. He gets out into the cornfield like he does in the movie. But when he comes up, she's been like corn crucified. She's got mm -hmm. corn like in her eyes, and she's dead. And yeah. then he gets captured and sacrificed to this like Lovecraftian god, essentially. And then we cut to the kids who are like in their new society. And there's like one kid who's like, oh, I don't really like this, but he who walks behind the rose or whatever no, can see into my heart. So I better not have any doubt. Yeah. And, but then it was like, a, it was a girl and like, that's the end. <laughs> and it was a girl too. Interesting. Yeah. A couple of interesting kind of, kind of big. She was like pregnant with Malachi's kid or something. Exactly. So Malachi is like, so Isaac in this, in, in this version of the story and King's version of the story is like a young kid who inherited the power from his older brother who aged out of being a part of the society, which was 19. And then this little kid, Isaac, at the end of the story is like, we're going to get even, we're going to go even further. <laughs> yeah. 18 now. So anybody yeah. who's 18, go walk in there. Malachi's 18. He walks in there without ever looking back. And this girl is like pregnant with his baby. Yep. And she's thinking about how like on September evenings when the corn is all dried up, she's thought about going in with two torches and just torching the whole thing, lighting it on fire, which is probably where they got the idea to actually light it on fire in, in the film version. Yeah. Um, but I thought that left it with, at such a hopeless place. And and like you can see how you're like, oh, eventually the, the kids will all age out and there will be no kids left. But you can see that these young kids are, you know, breeding with each other. They're they're continuing the cycle. Yeah. That maybe that's an implication of like she could be the one to to destroy this. If you wanted to look for hope, like maybe there is somebody within this who who might be against it. But you, I think there is places in horror for this where there's this entity out there. There's this danger, and some people who are unsuspecting come up against it and lose. Mm -hmm. And then that's the story. Is like that's things still there, and it's scary, and it's still lurking, and like. I think that there is a place for horror like that. Totally. And I, and, and, and I sometimes wish that that made it into movies more. Maybe I just need to watch more horror movies. But I, I do think I do think a lot of horror movies are drawn to an ending more like this, where the thing is defeated. And maybe there's an It Lives twist at the very end where it seems to be defeated, but it, in fact, it's still around. That way we can have mm -hmm. a sequel. Um, That's but, just the yeah, nature of yeah. what audiences had come to expect for a long time. But I think if you do digging, there's absolutely horror films like the, the really big blockbusters. Yeah, you're going to see that. But there's absolutely tons of horror films that end in a really bleak place like that. Sure. I mean, like The Shining is an example of one, right? Where like, yeah. you know, spoilers for that, I guess. But like the hotel is still there at the end of the movie of the movie <laughs> uh you know again differences differences all over um okay so it, it sounds like uh what, what are you gonna take here short story here uh i like short i just story. like a lot of what stephen king did here and i felt like the film kind of muddied it and and kind of lost the exact pinpoint of what he was he was getting at and some of the some of the uh, allegory that's going on i'm gonna take the story as well uh i thought i was gonna maybe go over the movie this time just because i did have some problems with the story it's one of my least favorite things of his we've read but i still enjoyed it and then when i saw the movie there was too many things i didn't like here even as i can as i can kind of uh recognize that it's this campy b movie thing that i maybe should like cut more slack to mm -hmm. it's a very particular kind of 80s horror movie 
Um, but it, I don't know. I, I, I just still, I, I have a little more respect for the story, so I'm going to give it there. But it, honestly, it's kind of close um, just because I'm, I'm not super enamored with either of them as yeah. much as I had an okay time with both. I guess I should reiterate too that like, while I'm taking the short story, I, I did like the film. Like I, I've seen this film quite a few times. I would watch it again for the, the campy nature of it and just to, to, to sit down and watch a, a you know an interesting adaptation. Yeah. I'm curious to see if the new one uh, is the same camping tone or not, or if they tried to go super serious with it. Yeah, I haven't heard a lot about it, so yeah. maybe, I don't know. I can never tell uh, if that means a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, it could exactly. Be bad. All right, so I think we're going to leave it there. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. Uh, if you're on YouTube, make sure to subscribe and like the video. Comment. Let us know your thoughts on this movie. Is this something you watched when you were young? When did you first see it? Has your has your experience with it changed over time? Have you read the story? Curious about all that stuff. And be sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of those at Ink to Film. We're also on TikTok and uh, blue sky now all kinds yeah. of places so look for us and if you'd like to support us monetarily we would greatly appreciate it we have merch on there um we have these like t-shirts and hoodies and uh mugs with like this special different uh logo that looks really cool um if you wanted to get those the best way to do it is on patreon.com slashing to film you can also get access to our bonus episodes like what we just talked about how we might cover this as a bonus that would be over on patreon so we'd love to have your support over there and that that starts as little as two dollars and thank you to ross bugden for the use of our intro and outro music all right that's going to be it for this week but next week we are getting back to Robert Jordan and back to the Wheel of Time. I know this is one that you've been looking forward to. You said you haven't read on after after book one. Um, we weren't sure if we were going to be able to find a way to tackle this, but we, we ended up finding just enough room in our schedule. So we're going to go in. We're only going to read book two. I know that it touches some on book three, but we're going to do book two and season two of the show. And I'm excited to get back into it because I love Wheel of Time, a foundational uh, series for me. Yeah, it feels kind of surreal. Two years on, I, I was like really wanting to continue on after after that first book. So it's I'm excited to jump into book two. I've been on a fantasy journey outside of Jordan just for the podcast. So I'm yeah. really excited to get back into him. And then I really hope that season two improves from season one and, and you know this, this show can capture some of that magic. All right, until next time. Keep adapting. Keep adapting.